You're listening to Fundshack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm speaking with Raynar Indal, founder and managing partner at Suma Equity, a Nordic-based private equity firm which manages Europe's largest dedicated impact fund. Rainer founded Suma in 2016 after migrating from the traditional buyout industry to philanthropy following the global financial crisis. The firm has 50 billion in Swedish kroner under management and is investing to solve global challenges. Rainer, welcome to Fundshack. Your firm, Suma Equity, uh, runs Europe's largest uh, impact fund, I believe. How did you come to set up Suma? What was your thinking behind it? What are the whys? Well, thanks, Ross, and thanks for uh, inviting me onto your podcast. It's uh, it wasn't quite obvious when uh, when I founded Suma in 2016 that impact and sustainability would be a uh, an important category. So uh, I probably have to go a little bit back in uh, why sort of why did I arrive at that point? Uh, so my background is uh, I studied in the U.S. undergrad at Wharton and at Harvard. Uh, then worked for McKinsey for a few years, went into venture capital, uh, joined as the CEO of a, of a tech company where I lived through a brutal dot-com crash and all of that and managed to take it public. Uh, and then joined Alter Equity Partners when Alter started up in 2003 in the Nordic. Yeah. Very successful private equity fund. Um, and uh, we did a lot of mid-market deals. Um, and, a lot of my, and then the financial crisis came, which didn't affect us that much. But it affected me in the sense that uh, I hadn't, uh, Harvard hadn't taught me anything about the financial crisis potentially coming. So I really started to study why, uh, why the financial crisis mm-hmm. and then got more and more worried about uh, how our system is creating all these large externalities, both environmentally and socially. And turning 40, I looked myself in the mirror and asked myself if I was part of the problem or part of the solution. And I was sitting there with a few oil and gas so, uh, service companies and looking at the portfolio I, I had invested in, it was quite clear that uh, uh, I was agnostic to these issues and I wasn't part of um, part of the solution. So I decided to leave private equity and uh, wanted to work more with philanthropy and, uh, and impact. So I joined the board of LGT Venture Philanthropy, which is the Princely Families Foundation uh, for Philanthropy, uh, to, uh, to help develop their strategy around philanthropy and impact. So I, I was lucky enough then to travel the world and meet with a lot of these sort of emerging, more venture uh, impact funds and also look at some fantastic companies that were really creating some changes in, uh, in the local markets. And, and what I saw was that uh, those that were most financially successful were also the ones having the most impact. Hmm. Uh, but the whole notion then was it was impact first or, or finance first in the sense that it's a trade-off between impact and sustainability and financial return. Uh, which uh, I didn't see uh, logical, uh, rather the opposite. I mean, if in the in the challenges that we have globally now, if you are really going to succeed, you'd rather be solving some of these problems rather than creating it because the cost will be too big if you are a negative impact company, whether it's carbon tax or whatever. And if you want to, to really uh, get the best employees and get financing going forward and have a successful company that grows, you need to be solving some of the issues we have. Then you will have tailwind. So hence, I decided in, in, in 2015, 2016 to go back into private equity and start a fund, uh, a, a thematic fund around some core uh, thematic areas which we need to solve uh, the problems that we have. And, uh, and uh, essentially, we were the first uh, called impact sustainability fund in, in the private equity market. So, And we 
committed to UN Sustainable Development Goals and have used uh, that framework to, to really assess what problems are our company solving and how are they solving it and how can we solve it better. So that was a long answer to your question on why starting Summa and, and, and uh, how did we... Uh, how did we kick it off and why? See, it's it's easy for me to say, well, obviously, you know, that was the right decision to make. But in 2017 or, or earlier when you left Alto, that was a big, that was a big leap. That was a big risk you took. So you, you have a lot of personal conviction behind this so that, I, that I just want to emphasize, I suppose. A lot of people uh, and investors thought that was pretty crazy. Why start uh, an impact fund in 2016? For me, it was, uh, that's what I wanted to do. And it could fail or it could be successful. And I didn't know. So now looking back, uh, it's easy to say, you know, this was a brilliant move and good timing and all of that. It didn't appear like that in mm. 16. Mm. But I had enough. So LDT backed us and a few other very credible large um, LPs. Yeah. Uh, so we were able to, uh, with our thematic approach, uh, also get some, uh, some really leading LPs uh, on board, uh, which I think... Uh, a lot of people did not expect this to succeed when I kicked mm. it off. And you've, you're already onto your third fund, so the first and second must have, must be going okay. Yeah, so we uh, we invested quite quickly. So we have three thematic areas. We call them resource efficiency, changing demographics, and tech-enabled transformation. So these are areas that have tailwind growth, and they're either so, our companies are either solving an environmental problem or a social problem or providing better governance through SaaS uh, and compliance uh, software. So uh, attractive uh, areas, and we were able to find uh, a lot of uh, excellent companies uh, within those uh, thematic areas. And um, we were the only uh, impact sustainability fund. So a lot of the companies uh, also wanted to be owned by someone who was aligned with their mission oh, yeah. uh, as well. Mm. So we deployed quite fast. Our first fund was 450 million euros. Our second fund about around 650 million euros. Uh, and we deployed all of that capital within the first four or five years. Um, and we have returned more investors, uh, more money in fund one than we have drawn down. And we're getting there on fund two. And both of them are tra trading in top quarter. So it's been, uh, our thesis was to show that this type of investments in, the, uh, in mm. these areas will outperform uh, other areas. So we're glad to see that uh, we, have, we have succeeded so far. So the, the, the whole concept of impact is interesting because you, you started by saying you're in private equity, then you went through to philanthropy and now you, you run impact. On paper, uh, an impact fund such as yours, technically speaking, is not really diff any different to a, to a private equity firm. You're for profit. Yeah. You're, you're, you're focused on returns, but not yeah. only returns, but yeah. you could say the same of a, of a private equity firm. Yes, they're focused on returns, but they need, to, they need a thesis in order to get there. Yeah. Uh, and, and so... I was just speaking with a with a placement agent with regards to ESG and impact, and he said, uh, "I think his 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 one bit of advice was it's less about labelling; it's more about kind of really living living the values." Would you would you comment on that? I, I think that is right. I think we have had a huge benefit by being authentic around this since the start. I think it's harder to transition someone uh, something that uh, where you haven't built it up uh, around uh, the people you have a. Uh, employ the culture you're making and the way you, we are working and operating and what we're looking for and what's important to us and our purpose. So uh, um, I, I do think it's, uh, it, it's important that you build it up in the right way from the start. And I do think, you know, we do a lot of what other private equity firms do as well. Uh, we have started Summa Foundation, which is uh, almost 10% of all of Summa. So mm. we have also seen that uh, we need a non-for-profit 
arm to solve some of the challenges which uh, cannot be solved right in uh, in, in mm. the marketplace so so we do that uh, that as well but uh, yeah the authenticity and and the the way you build uh, we have built the organization thematically is different from other firms mm. because we're not sort of fund structure organized we're focusing around what problem are we trying to solve yeah and we have defined nine call it uh, problem areas and then we organized and uh, and really working around that and for, for each of these problem areas we are creating a theory of change so a theory of change basically says you know where are we today where do we want to be in uh, in the future mm. um uh, so we had just published our, ours on circularity and waste now and what's the tier of change for how to get here to there mm-hmm. uh, and what do you need to believe in and what do you need to do to so you, make you, that happen so you said you got the three thematic areas which i think is aging population uh tech enabled and no, right, resource efficiency and resource efficiency and so within them yeah. you got another three which makes the nine is that right yeah it's yeah. Uh, and, and then great. within the, each of the nine you've got a, a, a theory of change yes Right. So Could you give us an example? Well, circularity and waste is uh, one area that I've been working a lot with. And we have done several investments. Uh, one of our first investments was Sortera in, in Sweden, which we built up to be the third largest uh, recycling company in Sweden. And that we were also awarded the deal of the year uh, by Real Deals uh, from as well. Uh, so it's an investment we made over eight times our money on uh, mm. in developing that. When we acquired um, Sortera, it made all of its money collecting waste. When we sold it, it also made money uh, downstream. So, which means that we have uh, invested quite heavily in the capex to make it more circular and uh, increase the recycling rate, yeah. uh, which has a huge impact on uh, on both sort of the material security that we have and, and also CO2 footprint. So uh, then we bought Norsk Genvending, uh, which is the largest one in Norway. Um, and uh, and we have a few other companies, uh, TB Auctions, uh, Holbart, which are also in the space of reducing waste or... Uh, uh, or reusing uh, products. So what we now did was to work with McKinsey in order to look at sort of this the linear economy today that we have uh, in Europe. What is needed to make it fully circular uh, based on the technologies that exist today, the different players and in industries, and how do we get there? What does that really mean, though? What's the difference? What, what does linear and circular mean in that context? So uh, each one of us have a material footprint in Europe uh, today of 2.2 tons every year. So everything that we consume, but also the cars and houses and everything uh, we engaged in. Um, at the end of life, half of that becomes waste. So one point ton of waste is generated by you and me uh, every day, every year. Uh, so if you employ today the technologies that exist in uh, in sorting, in recycling, and in creating useful material out of, uh, out of this, uh, 80% could be in a circular economy instead of only 50% uh, today. So the um, uh, uh, the uh, CO2 footprint today by half of it being uh, waste at the end of life and how that is managed mm-hmm. and also produced and all of that is 22% of our CO2 emissions today in Europe. It's a huge number. Um, and uh, if we invested 230 billion euros we can lower that by 55%, so go from basically 22% down to 10% uh, if we did it now. Um, and 80% of all the material we will be self-sufficient on, in, in uh, which is good from a geopolitical standpoint. Mm. And then we took those 230 billion. Uh, where does it need to be invested in CapEx? 50 billion needs to be in better sorting uh, equipment, which already exists. 80 billion in, in better recycling. 
and 100 billion is to make useful products like sustainable aviation fuel or uh, or biofuels. And uh, uh, if you look at the uh, revenues that should create and the margins and what kind of multiples those companies should trade at, it's a one to two trillion euro value creation opportunity. So it's a massive, I mean, we can make a five to 10 times our money on uh, doing this CapEx and create a lot of jobs and reduce the CO2 so we get back to the one and a half degree uh, scenario and be more self-sufficient on material. And so 230 billion is more uh, than Summa has. But it's not an insane number. If you look mm. at until 2040, which was the timeline we had, that's essentially uh, less than 1% of GDP that we have to invest in this to create such a massive impact. So that's an area we are super excited around and, and how we use a theory of change. So if you look at these 230 billion, where do it need to be invested? Uh, we have about 30 areas that we have uh, defined as very interesting uh, Areas and we have now a priority on three of them. So, uh, so that's the way we use the theory of change to see where should Suma now invest and what kind of companies should we be looking for um, and how can we grow these companies and, and also enhance what they're doing through mm. CapEx investments, uh, etc. A figure like 230 billion investment to equal X outcome. It sounds a little pie in the sky, but I think um, this isn't dependent on com- completely new technologies. You, it sounds like you've identified. Um, inefficiencies that could be addressed directly with this money. Is that, yeah. is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the question is, why isn't it then happening? Well, if you look at the waste management industry, which I know quite well, since we've owned a few companies and own a mm. uh, company in it, it's a quite old-fashioned uh, industry. It's not a high-margin industry either. So who, you know, how do you get the funding to, to make these uh, mm. significant investments in the new setups and the new uh, plants and the new technologies? And you also then need the customers to commit or the the waste generators. And this has been an area where everyone wants to become more circular, reduce the CO2 footprint. Mm. But uh, at the end of the day, even in Norway, um, it's focusing on price. So if if you're a waste generator, all you care about is is the price to get rid of your waste. Uh, So why would you pay a premium? To, uh, for it if you don't have to now. So there, there, is, uh, there is changes that needs to happen on getting sort of sufficient number of customers together at the scale significant enough and have them commit and, and agree. Um, and then um, also the legislators to be more uh, uh, helping out on aligning the agenda and leveling the playing field. And then I think the banks are quite eager to 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 fund green investments mm. because they also have set net zero targets. So we saw that we got we refinanced our, our Norwegian waste and recycling company uh, with a sustainability linked financing. So the banks are quite open even in this difficult market for uh, for financing things uh, which uh, which helps on the green uh, transition. To what degree is the the impact side of it just a way a way for you to focus um, uh, how you invest your money? As opposed to, what degree is it? Is it kind of measured alongside uh, the financial impact? Yeah. So uh, since the start, uh, we have been uh, sort of developing our, our own uh, way of measuring impact, but also then using the new standards that have uh, also appeared along the way. Uh, we have, um, as an example, so we have been part of piloting together with Harvard Business School what's called impact weighted accounts. So what impact-weighted accounts is, it takes the externalities, whether that's on the environmental side or social side or product side, and uh, puts a monetary value on it. 
So our emissions has a cost to the planet. What is that cost? And you can find that scientifically. So there's a market for it, but there's also a scientific uh, proofs on what uh, that actually uh, what the cost is for for the planet. The same on socially through you know if you don't pay fair wages, for example, what what is the negative benefit of uh, uh, of that? And on the product side, if you have products with a lot of sugar in it, you can you can measure what the health effect of that is and what the cost to mm. society is for a sugar-based uh, product. So uh, they have uh, they have developed quite an extensive way of uh, of really just translating all of these externalities uh, to a euro figure or dollar figure. What's good with that is that you can compare, you can see, would this company be profitable? Here we have the financial numbers, but if you injected the uh, impact weighted numbers as well. How would the revenues change? How would the margins change? Uh, and the cost of the balance sheet. So you can uh, actually see what the true profitability if all the both benefits and costs to society had to be included in a financial statement. So uh, Does this make your due diligence process harder, or longer, more involved? It's, it's, it's a brilliant question. Uh, uh, the truth is that we are only now starting to do this in the due diligence phase. Uh, because first we had to use the methodology on an existing one, and you do need a lot of data from the companies, uh, especially on the product side, to be able to do it. And there hasn't, so Harvard has helped us with it. They had a team on it. Now there's more consultants as also starting to, to use this framework. Uh, so uh, uh, now it's easier for us to do it as part of the due diligence. Uh, and, and I think that's the way to go because uh, we've always said that the management teams and our deal teams, they need to put the sustainability KPIs that we have used for each company and also make forecasts on those. But now it's good to actually have it in comparable numbers. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so that is something that we are, uh, we are rolling out and we have added a few individuals internally and uh, working now with some consultants to help us uh, do that because it is a little bit more detailed. Uh, it, it requires more in the due diligence yes. process. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And so the, the three themes you've got. That, uh, um, which Resource efficiency, yeah, changing demographics and yeah. tech-enabled transformation. Do they, do they link together somehow? In the beginning, we didn't talk too much about sustainability and impact in ESG because we really wanted to be in the mainstream. We wanted to get uh, the best in uh, LPs and we wanted to show uh, that impact is giving better returns. Mm. So if you look at these three areas, it's really environmental, social and governance. So we just put those names on it uh, to make it clear what, uh, in what thematic areas the companies are. Okay. On the tech-enabled side, there is an overlap with some of our tech companies uh, do provide health, uh, healthcare solutions and also resource efficiency solutions, mm. but from a tech, tech angle. Those that don't overlap with the environmental and social side is compliance software. So we have had several companies uh, which are compliance software to uh, mm. be compliant with the regulatory uh, regime. Yeah. And what about the aging populations? What's the, what's the, uh, financial... so we've been, we've been focusing on healthcare and the subsector of healthcare called the omics space. So really uh, the area which is um, providing the tools for understanding our body, uh, in a better way. And, uh, and, um, so on the social side, we have, we, we have, we could have done other areas as well. So we are quite narrow within that, but you know, education would fall uh, within it, uh, security, you have other uh, adjacent areas which have a lot of social benefit and social mm. impact. Yeah. So we have just tried to be really good at what we are doing. So hence we have been more focused and, uh, and quite narrow 
in some of these areas. And on, on the on the changing demographic side and the healthcare side, we've been super narrow in uh, what we have been focusing on. Mm. Yeah, and and there's more. So when you started out, impact was you know, you were out there, mm. but now it's you could almost call it mainstream. You got a lot of the big asset managers with impact funds and many impact funds. How's this changed things? The competitive landscape and and presume, I mean, presumably in one sense it's easier because it's easier yeah. to sell something that everyone knows about yeah, and is mainstream. Yeah. But in one sense, it might not it might be harder. Yeah. Well, well. First of all, I think it's fantastic that uh, this is becoming more and more mainstream, and I think all investors need to think about impact. All companies have impact, positive or negative, uh, and I think you need to be aligned that in the in in the right way if you're going to create returns uh, going forward. So I cheer on everyone that is uh, now being explicit going into into that area. I think in a, in a few years, um, impact is not going to be a separate category. It's going to be fully integrated. And it's, uh, we call it private equity 4.0. We have gone through a transition in our industry from the barbarians at the gate, private equity 1.0, to more focusing on uh, operating improvement and, and mm-hmm. private equity firms added the operating partners. That's the sort of 2.0 to many of the 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 private equity funds starting to compete against um, uh, corporate buyers and hence having to be more focused on industries and uh, and also growing and become large one and more institutionalized uh, players mm. but in all of these areas uh, impact and sustainability didn't matter externalities didn't matter and we think that has fundamentally changed now. Uh, if you're going to bet, get the best employees, if you're going to get financing for the companies, if the companies are going to succeed, they will be hit with either some penalties for the negative impact they're having or they're going to benefit from having positive uh, impact. So I think this is going to be, uh, it's going to disappear as a category as such. Mm. And I do get the question uh, that you just posed from a lot of our LPs. So, we have a lot of advantage of being the first and uh, authentic um, and building up uh, summa around this thesis. But now everyone seems to be doing it. So are you losing your advantage? And uh, uh, my reply to that is that that's why we have become a bit more narrow in which thematic or problems we're trying to solve. Mm. Mm. So we want to be the best within waste and circularity. Uh, we want to be the best within food and ag. We want to be the best in omics. We want to be the best in compliance software. So mm. our teams have started to focus, and that's why we're creating this theory of changes, why we have added some really unique thematic partners who know these industries and thematic areas extremely well. So I would say when we, when we look at companies now, I don't meet any of the other impact funds in in the companies. Uh, with you know, There's some that are more auction-based, but we have a lot of proactive deal mm. sourcing. So we will meet some um, in, uh, in some of it. But in general, I don't feel that the competition has increased. But that might be just because we have become more narrower and more, narrower and more yeah. specialized. Yeah. I wonder what the risk profile of, of uh, impact funds is. Because it's one thing, you know, assessing the financial performance of a company five years yeah. after you've applied your value creation toolkit. But it's, an, but it's another thing. Yeah, because almost by definition, you are dealing with companies in areas of great change, um, not you know, and that doesn't mean they're necessarily they're not, not like venture bank yeah. companies, but they're still their broader environment is either dependent on a rapidly evolving regulatory environment, mm-hmm. for example, or a rapidly evolving consumer perception yeah. context. Yeah, um, and I suppose it's an unanswerable question, but it's an interesting one. I think yeah. you know what the risk profile might be. 
Um, in the sense that we have a quite traditional approach in the sense that the companies we're looking at, it needs to be net positive in the sense that it has to solve some problem already today. We don't want to do a turnaround um, uh, on that. And then it's about building on it and, and growing it. Uh, we don't factor into our base cases that we will get a regulatory change during our ownership period. So if that happens, it will benefit our companies because they are in uh, areas where regulation needs to be uh, improved. Um, and since we're already on the positive side, you know that will only accelerate and make a more level playing field. Um, so I would say the risk is uh, is lower. And and if you look at the companies, we just announced two exits uh, that we've done. And if you look at all of our exits, we have averaged over uh, we average around four times the money on those uh, investments. And they have been at a premium to our latest quarterly valuation, so our uh, net asset value on on those uh, assets. And we have a traditional approach looking at sort of the peer group, uh, listed peer group, taking a discount to it. That's the, uh, yep. uh, that's the valuation of our companies. And basically all of them have, uh, have been sold at a premium to the peer group. So I think the market is recognizing that these are companies that are growing well, they're doing something uh, positive. So they, have, uh, they are future-proof uh, in that sense. And you, uh, there's lower risk just because you know that this company won't, won't be uh, disrupted by a carbon tax or... Yep. something that might yep. come. Uh, so uh, so I think actually from what we're seeing in our portfolio and, and the companies we're looking at, uh, they're lower risk. What's your geographic remit? Mostly focusing on the Nordic. We open an office in, in Munich. So we're looking at the Dach region as well. Uh, but as we have become more focused thematically, I would say our we look at companies also outside our uh, our core geographies, uh, but only in areas where we, where we have unique competence and knowledge. Do you have like a value creation playbook or toolkit that you typically employ certain techniques? Yes, we do, but I, I don't think it's that different from what other private equity funds do. We the hundred day plan or the five year plan or whatever yeah. uh, private equity firms call it, we call three phase plan. So we look at the company in, in phase one is the first year or two we own them. How can we just improve them uh, based on what they're already doing? I think most private equity firms do that. That's, that's essentially the 100-day plan. Phase two is uh, two to five years from now. Where is 20% of their revenues coming from, which they don't have today? That could be a new geography. It could be a new product. At the same time, it also has to high-grade what they're doing. So if you look at the waste and recycling companies, that's what we looked at for Sotera and, and we're doing with Noshki and Winning, is uh, how can we increase the recycling rate so that they are more sustainable? Um, so then you have to do some investments in CapEx and um, uh, maybe acquire some companies in areas uh, that you're missing. And then phase three is really forward-looking. So the theory of change we've done on circularity and waste is really looking into 2040 having a circular economy. If you own a waste management company and you're not doing anything to get mm. to the 2040 target, you will be out of business because there's hardly any waste. The feedstock will become quite valuable. So your business model will be disrupted. Mm. So we look for each of our companies that, you know, how can they be a leader? Um, and that's where the theory of change comes in, uh, into setting that sort of both time set and, and, and uh, where are we then? And what mm. do we need to do of changes now? And all this phase one, two, and three, you have to work on all of them at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, of course, most of the effort goes into phase one when you're in phase one. 
But if you're not doing anything on phase two, you will never get to the 20% revenues in two to five years, right? Mm. So, and the same with uh, phase three. What what you're doing in phase two should be the stepping stone. We're leading the way into phase three. I suppose when building a, a company like Zuma, it's different, slightly different perhaps to um, a purely financial focused private equity firm because then you're just, I guess, just trying to attract the brightest graduates who are obviously self-interested as we all are. But you have this, there's an impact overlay. How has yeah. that affected how you've built your firm and how you build and create the culture and maintain mm. it? So the purpose of Summa is to uh, invest to solve global challenges. So we had that since the start. And our purpose is, uh, is very, very important to us. So we have to be convinced of the people we're bringing on board uh, that you're generally in there interested in in, uh, in solving the challenges uh, that we're facing. So you're not purely doing it to get into private equity and, and make money. Uh, so everything starts with a purpose. That's why also we set up Summa Foundation uh, to also be a part of giving. So essentially all of us have to do a 10% cut of what we otherwise would make in a, in a similar private equity firm because that's all going to, uh, to philanthropy. Uh, so we do then have lower compensation in Summa, and then a comparable uh, project firm due to that. Uh, the, um, uh, the second part is that what kind of people are you bringing around? Because we are trying to, to go on a new path that there aren't many examples of, uh, of how you do it. And some of these challenges, uh, you need, really need different perspectives on it. When you're only, not only focusing on phase one, you are focusing on phase two and three and the theory of a change, uh, you need to bring in other perspectives as well. So diversity has been extremely important uh, to building the organization. The third thing that has been important to us is uh, is transparency and, and honesty. Uh, so all these things go both internally and externally. So we um, we don't want to greenwash anything. We want to be open about the challenges that we're having. And we want people to bring their whole self uh, at work as well. So, so let's uh, create a culture which is... We are very, very team-based. And it's quite an integrated team uh, with, uh, with the Via Summa, which is the value creation team, the impact team, and the thematic deal team. Uh, so uh, a lot of these theory of changes, the, the thesis, um, and uh, when we are looking at companies, and also figuring out how Summa can be better, is very, very integrated. We are um, um, trying also to create the psychological safety. So it's not that easy always. I mean, there's always challenges. and um, uh, But really, how can everyone feel comfortable about speaking up when there's not something that isn't working? And yeah. how does people take entrepreneurship and just solving it instead mm. of complaining about it? So, yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, that uh, aligning around the purpose, we all know why we're here. Um, and being and, solutions focused rather than just moaning. Yeah, yes, sounds good to me. And 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 we know what's important and our and our core values. So, mm. um, yeah. So I was just yeah. speaking with a placement agent, and he and and he said it's amazing uh, how many private equity firms. Obviously, they're very focused on uh, value creation in the portfolio, but they never look internally at their own management structure, which is obviously what investors are also very interested in. It's yeah. like you can't, and in some senses, you can't really be a truly effective mm. external manager unless you are. Uh, honest with yourself about how you are managed internally. Yes. So can you give me an example of what you've done practically recently to sharpen up your internal processes? So we've been working with uh, Humatica 
uh, who you also know, oh, yeah. um, on developing a way to uh, to measure this. So we roll that out across our portfolio and we run it internally on Summa. So we, we shouldn't do, uh, ask our companies to do anything that we uh, we don't do ourselves. So this is about effective behavioral? Yes, uh, yeah, it's a behavioral assessment. That's mm-hmm. all what it's about. And and there's always room for improvement in various processes and how you go about things, how you gather information, and how you make decisions, uh, etc. It's super useful in, uh, and also that we can learn from our companies. And and mm-hmm. we have some amazing uh, XCOs and thematic partners on board, uh, which uh, which is a fully integrated part uh, of the partnership. Mm. Uh, where we can uh, we, we look at the data, we evaluate our processes, and uh, we, we try to be better. So your latest fund is an, an Article Nine fund, and that's relatively recent regulation. How did how did you find how did you find fitting into that box? There has been a lot of um, uh, talk around that some of the areas within Article Nine is isn't fully. Um, uh, not everyone agrees on what does that mean. What's the substantial contribution? Mm. Um, uh, so we've also published uh, a little bit of our methodology around it. Right. There was a lot of funds that were starting to downgrade from Article 9 to Article 8 mm. because uh, it's just unclear. Yeah, And I think that that is a pity. In the circularity and waste work we've done, we see a lot of the issues today are more in the brown, the whole brown to green transition. So it's uh, that's where it's making a bit challenging to be Article 9 because we can't buy a brown asset, although we can transition it to green quite quickly uh, we can buy sort of green assets uh, gray assets and uh, ah, that are right. sort of mm. um, but um, one example which uh, would be difficult now as an article 9 fund is uh, waste incineration mm. so when you incinerate waste today one ton of waste creates one ton of CO2 so the EU taxonomy has excluded it now and this happened two months uh, yeah, a couple of months ago from the, the green taxonomy so it's the brown ass is going to be hit with carbon tax, uh, all of that. Um, and there are ways to transition them to mm. green, uh, both to carbon capture uh, and also newer technologies. Um, on uh, So uh, one interesting area, what we need to do is we have 3,000 waste incinerators in Europe. They need to be transitioned to green. Mm. So that is an area where uh, where we would like to invest and be part of. Yeah. So if we do that, we will have to look at uh, starting an Article 8 fund. Oh, right. But that's where oh, the big, so uh, if we are going to decarbonize, we really need to transition uh, the brown uh, yeah. to green. Yeah. It seems slightly bizarre that you need to downgrade in order to upgrade yeah. the actual facility. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to actually make them green. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you mentioned kind of your, your vision that you hope, you know, in the in the near future, that there won't be an impact thing because everyone will go in this direction. But what about Sumer Equity itself? What's your, what's your you know, medium-term ambition for your firm? Where do you hope to, to be and take things? Yeah, I'm super excited about how we have been much more specific around what challenges we want to be part of solving and how we go about doing it. And I think, you know, then having a 2.3 billion euro fund now gives us more muscle to lean in mm. to some of those uh, problems. So in the circularity and waste, um, um, as I mentioned, um, I would like to find a way of playing in the sort of brown to green transition yeah. as an area we know very well now. Mm. Uh, we have companies uh, in this area and we have Bertrand Camus joined us as a partner. He is the ex-CEO of Suez. Mm-hmm. And when Suez and Veolia uh, merged, uh, he left and then he joined us and he's mm-hmm. super knowledgeable uh, uh, 
wow. in this whole, whole field and area. So I think it's just um, uh, we are focusing more and more, and then uh, uh, we might need uh, sort of all the funds then to be able to invest in an article eight brown yeah. to green uh, yeah, yeah, uh, transition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes sense as the uh, as, as this part of the market matures, that it becomes more specialist. Yeah, that's the way the rest of the market is yeah. going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, good luck with it. Thank you very much for coming on and sharing your thoughts. And uh, maybe you come back in uh, in some time and tell us how it's going. Well, it's great to be here. So, uh, so thank you. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. This podcast was designed and produced by Linear B Group, a leading content marketing agency focused on financial and professional services. Thanks for listening. <laughs>